This episode of the Neon Marais Show is in partnership with Digital Design Days and of Italy, which is 16 till 18 March 2018 in Milan, Italy. To learn more, visit ddd.it and when you are there and buy a ticket, use promo code NEOMORAY to get 10% discount on your ticket. And that's NEOMORAY spelled with a capital N and a capital M. Welcome to a new episode of the Neo Marais Show. My name is Thomas Daam and today I have the pleasure to talk with Chris Doe, founder of educational platform The Future and design agency Blind, both based in Santa Monica, California. Chris is speaking at Digital Design Days and of Italy on Sunday, 18 March 2018. Chris, thank you for being on the show. It's really great Thanks um, for having me. talking to you. Can you describe um, for the people who do not know the future what you do? on this um, educational platform? Sure. Uh, the Future is a company that we started about three and a half years ago. It was mostly just living on YouTube as a means to help share what we know with the world. I've been teaching for over 15 years at Art Center and at Otis College of Design, and I thought that we, we must do better than to teach just a handful of very privileged kids. What else can we do to make a dent in the universe? What can we do? So that's when we started to create videos on YouTube to transfer the curriculum that I was teaching online and make it available to everybody for free or for, or for very little money. What uh, motivated you to start? Well, at the very beginning, it wasn't so much a, a giant business plan. It was just the, the passion and the reward of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I get great gratification from teaching, and this is something I, I really wanted to do, and I wanted to do in a way that was scalable. I thought it was a little silly that every year or every semester I would prepare the same curriculum essentially as syllabus, and then teach the same subject matters over and over again. Hmm. The only thing that was really different was the interaction with the students. So I thought, why can't we just use and leverage the things that we know how to make already with video and the platforms that already exist, something like YouTube, and put those two together and see if we can do something that's more scalable. Hmm. On which point did you figure out that you are passionate about um, teaching? Well, I've been passionate about teaching since pretty early on in my design career. I found that while I was still in school, I learned things pretty quickly. And my classmates would come and approach me and say, hey, can you give us your critique on the work? And these are my classmates. These are not freshmen or somebody that's lower than me. And I enjoy that. I enjoy being able to share what I know. And it's kind of a way to also check to see if you truly have learned something. So when somebody asks you for help, if you aren't able to help them, then maybe you haven't learned it well enough. And so I've, I've always loved teaching, but I gave myself some self-imposed rules that when I first started, that I would wait at least five years after graduation before I would return and start to teach. I knew that I can only retain X percentage of what my instructors taught me and to turn around right away and teach again would probably be a, a detriment to the students who are in my class. So I wanted to get at least five years of experience and almost five years to the day an opportunity popped up, and that's when I started to teach. Taking it online was just the next logical step. Now, granted, it took me 10, 15 years before I decided to do that, but ultimately that just seemed the very natural path to go forward. Is it also because the technology made it possible for you to do this? I think so. I think having a free platform that allows you to upload really large files and to be backed by a powerful search engine it's one thing to make a video. It's another thing for somebody to actually see it. 
And if you play by the rules set forth by Google slash YouTube, then the content becomes a lot easier to find. So having to learn that was was part of building out the channel and our network as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, how did you know that that you wanted to teach and learn other people to become a better designer or understand the business of design better. Having run my company for a number of years, uh, at this point probably about 15 years running the company, I'm not the person who's hands-on anymore in terms of making style frames or doing animation work. And I always felt, gosh, I want to teach something, but what I really teach is how to talk to clients because that's really what I know how to do, how to negotiate, how to art direct that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. So if, if I was a better animator, if I was a better uh, photo retoucher, perhaps that's what I would wind up teaching. But the fact of the matter is I'm an entrepreneur. I deal with clients all the time. I hear all their objections. And I'm also strategizing and giving advice to the team on how to overcome certain objections or how to bid a project. Mm-hmm. And that's where I spend all my time. So that's naturally, you, you teach what you know, right? So this is what I know. And I started to create content around this. And I was learning a lot about branding as well. And I wanted to share what I was learning about branding kind of almost in real time. Most people listen to learn or listen to understand. I listen to teach. Um, mostly that makes me very aware that I need to learn this better than most people because I want to turn around and be able to teach it at the same time. To listen to teach. Yes. Um, how do you do that? Because it, it, okay. it creates a different mindset, I think. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. Uh, let me see if, uh, if I can explain this well. When I'm listening to teach, I'm trying to figure out what the main ideas are. And if I am able to turn around and share the same concepts that the next person, then I've learned it well enough. And so I, I really want to get into the deeper issues. So typically, let me think about this. So if you're sharing a concept with me, I'm trying to break it down and I process it in a couple of different ways. One, what are the most salient points? Kind of break them down into bite-sized pieces. Two, I look at the manner in which you taught. So if you're beginning um, your story with something that's really dramatic, I might study that and then use that as well as in terms of how I'm teaching the content that you just shared with me. Mm-hmm. The third thing I'm doing is I'm looking at structure. Did you begin with a big question? Did you end with a big question? What exercises did you do in between? So I'm really kind of not only listening to, to learn myself, but I'm also studying how you teach the material. Right. And this is also how you build up most of your content on the internet. Or at least that's the structure that I discovered in the episodes that I saw on, the, on your YouTube channel. That is right. Hmm. Is it something mm-hmm. typical that you do in the States or that you learned on, on um, art school? Mm, that's a great question. Yeah, I don't think that's what we learned uh, in, in, in design school. And it's definitely not something I learned by going to public school. Okay, as a student, my function, my job is to memorize what is said only to pass a test. And as soon as the test is over, I kind of discard the information. So I'm not really reading or learning to keep it with me for the rest of my days. But now it kind of in this role as a person who makes videos and does podcasts and is teaching people, I have to consume information very differently than the way I used to. Hmm. So now I'm really learning the content because I know it's going to be helpful to somebody. So even when I read a short story within the context of a business book, I try to memorize that story to the best of my ability. So I go back, I highlight, and I share this in casual conversation with people that I meet or somebody that I'm mentoring. And the more that I share it, the more it becomes 
a part of my story. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but is it also something that that you developed over the years, or is it really because I you, think start, so. you started in teaching? I think I learned it before that, and I think it, it came from. I'll give you another example. So, in, uh, while I was going to design school, I was in typography class. And I noticed some strange behavior from my classmates. The teacher would give you a critique on your work, and then the students would pay attention. But as soon as the teacher moved on to the next student, they would kind of venture off into outer space and think about what else they were doing that day. But for me, I was watching and listening to every single critique as if it were my own work. Hmm. And I noticed an immediate reward to that. It meant that I was learning 10 or 15 times as fast as the next student, because every critique I treated as my own. Hmm. And that way I was learning much faster than them. And I noticed they literally were, I mean, if they had cell phones back then, they would probably be checking their cell phones for messages instead of paying attention. So then inevitably what would happen is the following week, they would make the same mistake that another student had made, but because it wasn't their work, they weren't able to process that. So I found it to be a competitive advantage and I'm a competitive person. So I started to listen very, very differently. Mm-hmm. But is it also because you want to, wanted to, so badly to succeed in your profession as a as a designer i i think so i think part of that was just i wanted to be the best Mm -hmm. Uh, i was very competitive i was very passionate and i always wanted to measure myself against how my classmates were doing so that was one way for me to move faster now now you're telling this um i was i'm thinking about me in (laughs) design school and how it was and that it also mm-hmm. depends on your mood, but you you um, sometimes you were really like like what you're saying. You listen to all the critique, and then you could do process it. But sometimes you were so you had to wait, or there was something else, or you were blurred already when the critique was coming. Did you also have that the teachers wanted you to go in a certain direction because it was their style? Mm, that's a good question. I think it, it, it would depend on the teacher. I, I think I made a quick decision as to if this was a teacher that was of, of note, like they knew what they were talking about and they were to be respected. Yeah. And if that, if that was the case, I would submit myself 100%. Basically, if the teacher told me to do something, I would just do it. And I wouldn't really question it because I wanted to learn from them. There were obviously uh, some, some teachers that weren't uh, as experienced or as adept at teaching. So in those ones, I would kind of listen with a grain of salt, as they would say, where I wouldn't just take it as gospel. Mm-hmm. I would listen and say, well, that doesn't jive with what I learned before. So I respect you, but I'm not going to do the thing that you asked me to do. Right. Now, it's interesting, but is it, this is also like an attitude that you have um, on, your, on the future, that you, you give a general idea of what the concepts are within the discipline of design it's not that you promote a certain style i think i try to use some of the modernist principles the philosophies of design what you should try to achieve in terms of clarity of message and and if you can conceptually add a hook to it then that would be great and i just work on that now a lot of people who don't truly understand this look at it as stylistic but for me it's not stylistic it's more philosophical now, generally speaking, the, the, the style of teaching that I prefer, and it's not always something that I can do, is more of a, a question-based approach, which is the Socratic method. So I would like to pose a series of questions to the student, whoever's learning, in order to, for them to figure it out on their own. And it can take a lot of time to be able to do that. 
So one, the old style is to be very prescriptive. Do this, change that, flip that around, and it's very efficient for time's sake, but it doesn't necessarily help the student understand the kinds of decisions that you're making in your head. So in, in a way, I have to teach them how to process what I'm seeing, but through their eyes. So that's usually when you ask several questions, like you can ask, where does your eye go first? What does this say to you if you have no context in terms of the project or the assignment itself? Is this in alignment? And if we were to ask 50 people or 100 people on the street, would they, would they say the same thing as you? And th these are the kinds of questions I would like for them to have echoed in their mind long after we have parted company. Many years into the future, when they look at their own work, they can ask themselves the same kind of questions to arrive at whatever answer they want. Now, so you ask very open question and, and is this also something that you notice when you record um, your videos mm. well mm -hmm, that's a good question i think in some instances you'll see me on the videos working with a younger team and i will ask some questions and guide them along the way and it depends on what subject we're trying to cover and how much time we have because it can be a very long and arduous process of helping somebody come to a certain decision. Sometimes for efficiency, we will then just go and critique the work like the old school way, which is to be very prescriptive and say, I don't like that change, just move this around. But more often than not, we, we do endeavor to try to show a whole process. So if I'm working on a logo, for example, and somebody has submitted it for us to review, I will try other ideas. I will show the thought process and not all of them are meant to be finished or preferred executions just to show them that maybe instead of getting stuck here they could try these other ways and I think to me that is really helpful it's almost as if they're sitting in the room with me looking over my shoulder as we talk about the work because you ask this open questions in in your in your process <clears throat> does it help to build a stronger community hmm. okay I, I'm not sure I can attribute the open-ended questions as the reason why we have a community of people who follow us and watch the videos. I think it's more that I have a very strong point of view and I like to think that I have some accomplishments. And so when I say things, I try to be very careful in the words that I choose and I try to do it in a way that is entertaining and sometimes polarizing. So we're going to have a number of people who love what we talk about who play along with us and say, oh, I, I came up with the same conclusions as you, so uh, we, we must be both get, be getting better, so this is great. Or I have other people say, this is stupid, you, you made the design worse. And I think they're missing the entire point, which is about exploration. Uh, I think a lot of designers fall in this trap of falling in love with their own work really quickly. So they tend to explore one idea and go really deep on one idea versus to try to see what else it can be before you lock into the final execution. And I think that's where we're getting a lot of engagement because people can agree or they can totally disagree with you and that's okay. And and they and I, I almost want to do a public service announcement before every video to say, this is just one person's opinion, one person's approach to design. If you enjoy my style of teaching, please stay tuned and follow along. And if you just want to watch to hate it, that's okay too, welcome. But I'm not saying I have some claim from some divine power, some source, much greater than, than all of us, to say that it's the truth. It's not. It's just my truth. And people get bent out of shape over this to say, well, you shouldn't say that. Well, I, I say you can say what you want. I'm allowed to say what I want. There's free speech, you know. 
And I, I, it's just an opinion. That's all. We're not talking about facts here. This is design. Yeah. <laughs> so right? you said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You said it. You said an interesting thing. There's that um, people get stuck in the first idea. How do you think that happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people get stuck in ideas because they don't have a robust process, and maybe they haven't had the same kind of rigor in in terms of design education as I might have, or perhaps maybe they're just a little lazy and and there's this thing there's, there's this thing called the ikea effect like that furniture company ikea right where there's this thing where even though you buy cheap furniture because you build it and you spend so much time working on it you actually have greater appreciation and affection for the thing that you build and this is something i caution people about the more you labor on something the less likely you are to to change it the less objective you become so it's important for me for people to learn how to use the tools really well so they can iterate and ideate really quickly because I don't want them to spend as little time as possible. Now, in the old school way of teaching, they would say, well, you have to sketch with pencil and paper first. That's because it's fast, it's iterative, and you can gesture really quickly. And so you can explore those ideas. As we're becoming more and more digitally inclined, the tools are powerful, but they look so refined and finished that you start to fall in love with your own ideas and designs you started building a strong community around the future and can you share some insights um, on how you do this and where you focus on how we build a community is first of all you have to make great content content that you put time and effort and energy into that people will want to watch our general rule of thumb is we want to make a video that we feel like people will pay for but then we release it for free So is it good enough that people actually pay money for it? Yes, then then that's a good start. You have to obviously get your SEO game correct. So you have to title things and you have to do meta tags. And the thing that we like to do is we want to respond to comments and legitimate questions, even on old videos that are two or more years old. We'll do that. And then what we want to do is also to connect different social platforms together so that there's different ways to talk to us. It's very difficult for people to continue on a thread inside of YouTube. So we use Facebook and we also use Twitter and Instagram. And we provide different kinds of content and different ways of interacting with us. So we're making it as easy as possible for people to be a part of the community and to engage with us. Furthermore, you mentioned earlier about a podcast. The only reason why we created a podcast was because the community had asked us, sometimes I'm going to they're in a long commute and they want to be able to listen to what we're talking about. So they just asked us to convert the YouTube content onto iTunes or a podcast. And initially that's what we did. But as soon as we started to do that, I realized a lot of times we're talking about visual things and we're not necessarily designing the content to be consumed purely through sound. And so then we recorded new content specifically for this audience. So it's really about listening to what your audience wants and then going out and delivering it to them. We don't post the same things across all mediums. Instagram is going to be very short stories. It's going to probably need to be a square format. It needs to be very visual, and they have to be short pieces of content. As opposed to, say, Facebook, Facebook also prefers shorter form content, and now we have to add in subtitles because a lot of people just swipe up and down as they're scanning their timeline. So those are different videos too. The, the base content will come from YouTube probably, and then we then reprocess that content 
and design it specifically for each platform. So right now our largest audience is on YouTube. It's the oldest and most developed platform that we're on. We have 250,000 subscribers or followers to our channel. And then on Facebook, it's probably our fastest growing community. And we're inching up towards 60,000 people who follow us on Facebook. I think Facebook community tends to be a little older. Uh, it's probably reflective of the demographic. They're real people, less likely to be trolls. And they're not anonymous, which is kind of cool because the way they interact with us is very different than, say, on these social platforms where everybody is fairly anonymous. And we're getting new people coming into the channel through Facebook and not necessarily from YouTube. Like say, for example, if we're talking about a live stream, because we'll simulcast a live stream both on YouTube and on Facebook, yeah. the YouTube audience is going to be much, much bigger. But the Facebook audience tends to be more civil in their dialogue in terms of making comments. They're not going to make inappropriate comments because they stick with them. And they don't want to be perceived as somebody who is narrow-minded or even racist or bigoted. Whereas on YouTube, they say sometimes very horrible things. If the comments are really harsh and not nice, um, do you take that personally? Or do you get in conflict with them? Or how do you deal, how do you deal with the, this, kind of, this type of okay. comments? Right. Uh, the negative comments, uh, there are negative critical comments that are constructive, which I can respond to. Then there's the, the blatantly racist and misogynistic comments, which we block and delete immediately. And if they persist, we'll block them from our channel and ban them permanently. Mm -hmm. yeah, the rest right. of the comments, the, the ones that are negative and constructive, I'll enter into a debate or a dialogue with them. I have no problems. I don't take anything personally. They can call me whatever. They can say, you're stupid. You're a moron. I say, okay, that's fine. That's your opinion. That's cool. Should we talk about something constructive? Or do we want to just do name calling? Now, there's a part to me that I do like to fight with the trolls. And I, against my own better judgment, I do get into it and we do do battle online. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Okay. But is it like I'm, now I'm thinking about your open way of asking questions. So this is in a way you approach them on the same way as that you approach people to think about their design. Yes. Right. I okay. try to. Okay. Oh, that's great. While researching you, in one of the interviews, you say that creativity comes by conflict. Can, can you explain that um, to me? I, I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of the events in my life that have shaped my thinking. And when I reflect back on my life, I think that I was born into a world of conflict. There was a civil war that was going on. My parents escaped Vietnam and escaped the communists. And so there was conflict there. We lose our country, our language, our, our culture. We lose everything. We have to start anew. And then growing up, I, I moved from school to school as we're climbing the socioeconomic ladder. And so there's conflict from, from being in the lower class neighborhoods all the way on through high school. I, I'm having conflict. I'm getting into physical fights with people. People are, are trying to bully me and target me as somebody that is easy to, to attack. And then what happens through all of this, I think, is you have to become tougher. Mentally and physically, you have to become tougher. Now, growing up, I didn't have an appreciation for this for sure because I'm not a big person. And these kids that are coming at me, throwing punches at me sometimes, you have to kind of decide what kind of person you're, you're going to want to become. 
do you want to be a victim all your life or do you want to stand up for yourself? Do you want to figure a way out? And that's what I did. I fought back. Now, I'm not telling you that I won these fights, but I fought back and that was enough for people to stop harassing me and they would move on to an easier target. This kind of stuff, I think, toughens you mentally and it also put me in a state of mind where things are always going to be a little unstable and that helps to build up your resiliency. So I'm not this delicate snowflake as they often call millennials these days where the slightest discomfort causes them to be spun out of control. So we've I've personally experienced some hardships and that makes me tougher. There's that expression that iron sharpens iron or that steel is iron under a lot of heat and pressure. So we mm-hmm. talk about that kind of conflict in terms of your own personal development. Now in terms of my personality, I think if you're never tested on something, they're just ideas and words in your mind. It's when you get pushed into a corner, you find out who you are. So I've had some kind of the emotional low points where I've had to crawl inside my body and my mind and kind of figure out what's the person I want to become? Is it going to, do I go left and become this kind of person or do I go to the right and become a different kind of person? And I'm constantly checking myself to see like, am I moving in the right direction? So I, I think sometimes young people who have it too easy where everything is perfectly lined up for them, the minute something happens, they're thrown off. Now, I think this also applies to creativity. Because if you aren't pushed out of your comfort zone, if you stay in one lane all the time, I think for me, life would get really boring. So I want to be tested. I want to be tested by my peers, by my mentors and my teachers while I'm still in school to make sure that I'm resolved in my thinking. Like I've put time in time thinking about this so I know where I stand. And if I'm challenged, it makes me dig in to figure out am I correct or am I wrong? If I'm wrong, I need to adopt a new way of thinking. If I'm correct, then yes, at least it was tested. Yes, and that's exactly what you also said in the beginning, is that um, when you were at school, you you saw all the comments from on the on the projects by other students, you saw as your own comments, and that from there you learn, and that was your test to see if it <clears throat> if you, if you understand it well. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Right. Okay. That is correct. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to learn this very quickly to summarize the things and then, okay. So, but, and now how you, how do you deal with this? Because you said um, in design, you also have to be triggered to be creative. Um, but now you, you stop designing because you also run uh, the studio, uh, design agency Blind. And mm-hmm. you are focusing now more on the future. So you const- is this the future const- constantly a trigger to get out of your comfort zone and do new stuff and figure out how far you can push it? So the reason why the future is constantly pushing me out of my comfort zone is I'm doing things like this. I'm going on a European tour, speaking in front of audiences. I have no idea what it's going to be like traveling to cities I've never been to, to before. I'm jumping on podcasts doing this with you today. I have no idea what the questions are going to be thrown at me. I have to learn to think on my feet. And I've come to the realization recently that all this live streaming, responding to people, teaching over the years has prepared me to deal with most any situation that comes out my my way. I was speaking to another person that was on a panel discussion with me, and she was sharing with me that she hated doing 
open-ended questions because she wasn't prepared. She, she preferred having a deck that she could write, rehearse, and prepare for. I said, I'm exactly the opposite. I would rather just sit in a room and talk to people and deal with whatever they throw at me because A, that's valuable to them, and B, I can just be in the moment versus thinking, and now I have to say this, and then next comes that, and then I have to do a conclusion, and then I have to smile and wrap things up. That to me isn't like real life. Like nobody thinks like that, right? Now, our millenniums prefer to text instead of to having a conversation in real life because then they yeah. they can design the way they um, are seen mm -hmm. by others. Or at least mm -hmm. that's what I heard in this uh, podcast. But yeah, I hear you about that you prefer to be in a moment and give her a mm -hmm. real reaction. And also it shapes you to find the right answers and give her in the moment reaction. Like for me, right. I'm, I'm, it's real. It's genuine. Yeah, exactly. It's I prepare the interview, but then so, so many things happen. You say so many, so many other stuff that I have to process, and 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 then the conversation takes a whole different tour. Right. Right. Okay. About touring, right. you already mentioned it. You are now um, on your um, European tour. How do you enjoy Europe so far? I love it. I love learning about different people, cultures, customs, and mindset. I, I realize that we have a global audience that's tuning in. And if I don't meet people, then it's just going to be speaking from an American culture point of view. And I think that's very limiting. So every time I go and meet new people and I do a talk, I walk away with lots of new ideas in terms of the challenges that they're facing and how I need to better address them. Right. How do you prepare a talk or a workshop? Uh, when I'm preparing a workshop, it's important for me to understand who's going to be there, the audience, what their needs are. Mm. If they're young, if they're older, if they're students, professionals running an agency, working in-house, if they're in web or graphic design or motion graphics. I tr try my best to tailor my talk for that audience because I strive to have maximum engagement. So I have a prepared deck. And the decks keep evolving. I'm now four stops into a six-stop uh, tour. And each deck has been different for each audience. I've been tweaking it, changing it, removing things. It's just like a stand-up comedian. You find out what works, what doesn't work, where people get stuck on. And it always surprises me. I solve the problem for the last audience, but the new audience brings a different set of problems and challenges. I'll give you an example. In Madrid, there was a lot of challenging me on what it means to be self-confident. There's a strong association that being self-confident means you're an arrogant person, that you're closed-minded, that you're dismissive, that you're not open to learning new ideas. And that's not my definition at all. So for the talk that I'm going to give in Barcelona, like today, tonight, mm -hmm. I made some adjustments to it, thinking that I need to address this more clearly because that wasn't coming through. Different audiences engage with me differently. Some are very passionate and vocal and some are very quiet and subdued. And so I have to change it up. And one last thing I want to mention is that I try to practice this form of, in air quotes, full contact teaching. You know, like there's full contact karate. We don't pull yeah. our punches. I do my best to engage the audience. I throw things at them and I get them to stand up and do stuff with each other and push people out of their comfort zone. Obviously, you can't do that on YouTube. It's not an interactive form of communication, but in real life, we can do that. And I can also see when somebody's leaning in or pulled back, their body gesture tells me a lot about how they're receiving the content. And then I'll draw them into the conversation and I'll say, wow, I noticed you did this. What does that mean? Yeah. Care to share? 
and we do that kind of stuff. And it makes everybody feel really uncomfortable, and I love it. And one thing that I like to say is to be comfortable in the discomfort. Right. So how did you figure out that this putting people in a discomfort um, situation that that worked in in your way of present, presenting? I, well, there was a lot of practice from teaching uh, at Art Center for 15 years uh, because if you imagine having somebody in a room with you for four or five hours, sometimes how long my classes were, hmm. it's hard to stay focused. Yeah, And I, I have this theory that TED Talks are, are fairly short, 18 minutes long, because after 18 minutes, your mind starts to wander and starts to kind of get overloaded. So by having the, the teaching style to be more interactive, more like a comedy routine, I know at least they won't fall asleep, that they're going to be engaged. Because at any given point in time, I could flip the whole dialogue. And I, and I have done this before where I'll say I have a two-hour deck to, to, or a presentation for you guys. But after I finish the intro, if, we, if you want to talk about something different, I'll close my laptop. We'll just have a real conversation. I'll teach you whatever it is you want to know. I don't care about this deck. I care about you. I care about what you want and what you're going to walk away here with. Because ultimately, you gave me something that's more valuable than money. You gave me your time, and I respect that. That's a wonderful approach in giving talks and workshops. Because then you get so much more than when you get just get a deck. Yes. Um, and then the funny thing is people always ask me, can I have the deck afterwards? And like the deck is like these weird abstract slides. Yeah. The, the, what, you, what you really want is the recording of the experience, but unfortunately, I yeah. don't have that. Yeah. Yeah, I have a last question about Milan because you okay. do a panel on uh, motion design and mm-hmm. um, I wanted to ask who is on it and uh, what do you think of the current state of motion design? But maybe that's a bit too long. Uh, let me try. Let me try and answer that. You want to try? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to be in Milan at Digital Design Days and I'm super excited to be there. One of the things I'm doing is having a panel discussion with Ash Thorpe and Danny Yount. These two are behemoths in terms of the motion design space. Danny Yount, a multi uh, Emmy Award winning director, designer, animator, self-taught person. I've had the privilege of getting to know him and would consider him as a friend. And then Ash Thorpe is the same way. Ash Thorpe is just a beast. Both these guys are workaholics and they're at the top of their game. What I want to do is have real conversation with them about the challenges that they have as artists, as individuals, and what they see as what, how the industry is developing and, and where there are opportunities and maybe this could shed some insight to somebody who's aspiring to do motion or maybe somebody has to restart their career or revamp their business. I want to have real dialogue with them and that's what I'm be pushing for. Wow, looking forward to that. At the end of every interview I do um, my Neon 5 which is a single recommendation in five categories um, starting okay. with food. What's your favorite food? Okay. My favorite food is Japanese food. I love everything about Japanese food. It's clean, it tastes great, and it's low in calories, and there's lots to choose from. <laughs> low in calories, that's good. Uh, movie or television? Okay, movie or television, okay. I, I love all forms of media, movies, television. I consume every single thing. I love going to sit in the theater, and I love watching uh, big blockbuster films as well as some of the more touching, uh, dramatic shows. For TV, I'm probably watching a little bit less these days. But when I'm watching, I'm watching Game of Thrones. I'm watching The Walking Dead. I, I love watching cooking channels for some reason and cooking shows. I also like some of the business programs like Shark Tank, 
Hmm. And uh, the, the program with Marcus Leomonas, The Prophet. Um, book? Mm, my favorite books yeah. tend to be around philosophy, around business. Most likely these days they're, they're nonfiction. And the books that I love the most are The Win Without Pitching Manifesto, Simon Sinek's uh, Start With Why, um, Tony Shea's Delivering Happiness, Jim Rohn's book on the seven strategies uh, to wealth and happiness, uh, Austin Kleon's book, Show Your Work, and there's a bunch more that I, I should mention, but I don't remember. Oh, The Brand Gap, and most, basically most books from Marty Neumeyer, Creative Strategy and the Business of Design by Douglas Davis. That's an impressive list. <laughs> wow. Um, a person? Mm, just one person or just people? Not one person. Just one person. Yeah. Okay. I admire my dad. My dad's my hero. My dad is a person who has, has suffered him a lot himself. He, he lost his father when he was only a teenager and he had seven or eight brothers and sisters to kind of raise. He, he had to sacrifice his own childhood to become the man of the house at such an early age. It changed him. And he's done nothing but to teach us uh, values of sacrifice, humility, hard work, perseverance, determination, and to be selfless, to give to other people. He has a great debt that he feels towards America, who took us in as refugees from Vietnam, And he, he put those ideas in us. He, he taught us to talk through our problems versus fighting things out through our fists um, uh, and, and to, to, to give wholeheartedly and to give generously. Wow, that's amazing. Um, miscellaneous, something, something from your life? Something from my life. Okay, I, I, I love my, my wife and my two boys. They teach me more about me than anybody else could. I love seeing young, impressionable minds taking information and to look at the world with eyes anew and full of hope and optimism, and I hope that they never lose that. Wow, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much. It is really inspiring to uh, talk with you, Chris. Um, How Thank can you, how can um, people find out more about you and get in touch with you? Great. It was an absolute pleasure being on this uh, podcast with you. People can get in touch with us in all kinds of forms. Uh, we make it very easy for you to find us. You can look up the future, and that's spelled the future without an E at the end, so the future, uh, thefuture.com. You can find us on YouTube uh, at the future is here on Instagram on facebook all the same handle and you can also find out more about me i'm at the chris doe and that's spelled d-o thank you so much chris um looking forward to meet you. you in milan and um okay have a great evening in barcelona thank you very much hi it's thomas i want to thank dot long and Filippo Spiercia of Digital Design Days for helping me organize this interview with Chris Doe. Neo Murray has a weekly newsletter. It's called Neo Monday. We send out this email newsletter every Monday morning and it has the latest design conference news and updates on a digitalized world. You can sign up for the newsletter on neomarais.com slash subscribe. 
You can also follow Neo Marais on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Neo Marais. And if you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find out about the show. Thanks for listening.